Welcome to the JetRails podcast, supporting you through the airwaves with information about website and e-commerce technology and strategies from design and development to security, marketing, conversion rate optimization, and web hosting. We bring you insights from industry leaders and experts hosted, edited, and published by me, Robert Rand, your friendly neighborhood tech ambassador. Welcome to an episode of the JetRails podcast. We're going to be talking uh, today about friendly fraud, you know, the story behind friendly fraud, how you can uh, stop it, really what's going on in, uh, in the online shopping world that is causing merchants a lot of grief when it comes to not necessarily uh, what we think of when we think of fraud with organized you know, criminals that have a process of stealing credit cards, selling them on the dark web, um, but more individuals uh, placing orders and uh, and filing chargebacks and having issues. And so I'm joined today by Yitz from the pay team. And, uh, you know, hopefully we're <laughs> going to um, shed some light on on that topic uh, in some good depth today. So Yitz, with no further ado, would you do the honors of introducing yourself? Sure. Thank you. Um, so I'm the founder of Pay. Um, I, my background was actually in the finance. I had no payment experience. Uh, I actually say that um, if I knew what I was getting into before I got into this, I never would have done it. So I'm, I'm kind of happy that I didn't because um, otherwise I never would have done it. Um, spent the last about seven years um, focusing on building out Pay and would love to tell you a little bit about what we do and obviously dig in deep into what friendly fraud is. So Seven years uh, in tech feels like a, a long time. I, I'm going to start off with my favorite tech question. How did Pay get its name? How did you come to it? And there's an interesting spelling. It's P-A-A-Y, right? So how did yeah. that come about? Was, it, <laughs> was that one of a hundred things that, that, that a few folks tossed around? Uh, yeah. So the original idea for Pay was something that solved the friction at checkout pain point. It was not looking for, uh, it had nothing to do with fraud or any of that stuff. And um, we, a bunch of us were sitting around in a room trying to figure out like, you know, what would be a good name. And, you know, I forgot who it was who actually came up with the, uh, um, the name pay. And they're like, oh, you know, we can use a lot of things like I paid. Um, and we saw that, you know, the four letter domain was actually available for us to um, get. Um, so, we figured there's a lot we can do with pay and, you know, we started out eventually now, you know, we shifted to fraud and that stuff. So it has a little different connotation. Um, but that was the, uh, you know, I guess the original, um, brainstorming and how we got to pay. Yeah, interesting. So really the company's evolved in the seven years. So you started out solving problems for people, uh, that wanted to get through, you know, check out faster. Cause that's still, I think, you know, a, a major issue and, and we've, uh, we've tackled it a few different ways on the podcast. I'm sure we'll tackle it a few more, you know, shoppers really don't, um, want to be inconvenienced. They're looking for speed out of the entire shopping process, the checkout, uh, especially, um, and you know, there are still no shortage of ways to, uh, to get through that process faster companies like PayPal and, and Amazon, Amazon payments, Amazon pay, uh, you know, offering for you to log in where you have all your information stored and skip over that, you know, places that, uh, that are going to save credit card, um, you know, through tokenization and other methods. I know there's um, uh, an e-commerce platform out of Latin America, Vtex, um, that uh, instead of having you use passwords that you're inevitably going to forget, it uses a form of two-factor authentication, basically, you know, drops you a message each time to uh, to verify that you're you're actually the shopper <laughs> that you say you are, uh, it, it's just this ongoing battle. So, how did you pivot from your your earlier beginnings that had more to do with that focus on payments and to where you find yourselves now, which is uh, dealing more with the fraud side of the industry? Uh, so that's a very good question. I'll give you a little bit of history on us. So the original idea was. I had, um, I loved shopping online. I hated the checkout experience. So I, I liked it when you walked into a store, you swiped your credit card, you signed, you were done. Online, it was and your credit card information, you're shipping, you're billing. It, it was just a very broken experience. And there hasn't been that much um, novelty around that. You know, we're basically making payments the same way we were, you know, 30 years ago on, on e-commerce. Uh, so the basic idea was I have an app on my phone. 
where I stored my credit cards and shipping address. This is prior to um, Apple Pay being out there. And uh, what we did was we built a little plugin on the shopping cart. So imagine I'm sitting at my desktop. I enter my, um, I, I add something to my shopping cart. And instead of going through that regular checkout, what we did was we built this little plugin where I threw in my phone number and it sent the push notification to your mobile phone where when you clicked on it, it pulled you into the app. So you had your default credit card and shipping address there. If you wanted to switch that, you was tap to change. Um, it had the merchant information, the transaction details. In essence, the confirmation page was right there. And then it was a, if you were happy with everything, it was a biometric or a pin code and you were done. Um, so from a consumer experience, it was 30 seconds or less from the time I threw in my phone number until I completed the checkout um, and it was more secure. And we thought, oh my God, this is a great idea. Let's go out there. Um, there was something magical about the experience. Um, we brought it to merchants and, and processors just to get their opinion. And they were like, this is pretty compelling on the consumer side, but our pain points are not really friction at checkout. I mean, that exists on every single website. So it's not like you can go to any website outside of Amazon with their one click and get like an easy checkout. Um, our pain points are, because these are what's called card not present transactions, we're liable for fraud. Um, we're paying higher interchange rates. Our approval um, authorization rates are much lower than traditional brick and mortar. Um, if you can solve some of those pain points, you know, then you have a compelling um, product. So we naively, so we actually naively went to the card brand and said, hey, can you give us a card present recognition with two-factor authentication, more secure than swiping a credit card? They basically told us to take a hike. So we said, okay, if we can't get it this way, let's figure out a way to like, in essence, hack the system um, to offer something. And we found this program called 3D Secure, which offered the benefits um, that we were looking for, which was liability shift. Um, at that point, it was higher interchange rate, uh, lower interchange rates. So we naively again thought that our authentication would replace the 3DS's version of it. Um, it didn't, but as we were, you know, building it in, we realized, you know, you know, there was a shift to what's called risk-based authentication. Let's utilize that, bake it into our product, and use that as a way to incentivize merchants to to do it. Um, so we made that 3DS in the 1.0 very frictionless experience, and we were about to launch it and then we're like hey wait a minute this like hack that we did for our product we can actually do in a regular checkout um and one of the issues we had we had been realizing and why we wanted to incentivize merchants um was we realized it would be a chicken and egg problem with the other thing merchants wanted to see consumer adoption consumer wanted to see merchant adoption so we actually tabled that um original product and said let's just push out 3ds um at that point already, there was already talk of 3DS 2.0, which was, you know, an understanding of where um, the future of, let's call it now, remote commerce or card not present um, is going. Um, so it was after that that we, you know, we decided let's focus for now um, strictly on the fraud side, while authentication and all that is still in our, our roots and our foundation. Um, for now, this is what we wanted to, you know, at least start to focus on and then eventually uh, pivot back to that. Well, you know, you... You hit on a lot there. And I, I think it's interesting that when we look at the retail space, we went from swiping cards to chips to now, in a lot of cases, you know, the you know, more modern uh, options of, uh, of being touchless, of uh, holding the card, you know, in proximity to the, the reader um, or holding uh, your phone in proximity uh, to the point of sale system. And, you know, so that, that's all there. And, you know, People are still signing the back of their credit cards, but really, you know, <laughs> I, I can still remember people, you know, taking carbon copies of my uh, of my credit card, putting it through that little machine that would apply pressure, and they, they'd get a copy of it. And nobody cares anymore. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, you know that the, the credit card processor isn't gonna uh, ask you to see the signature and to verify that the signature matches anyway. That's all done for, and that has nothing to do with twenty twenty. <laughs> You know, that, that was all in process already. So I, I think that thinking about that and applying it to the online space of how is this evolving? How should it be evolving? And taking it a, a step deeper that, you know, you're having conversations with CFOs and heads of finance and other people, because that's typically in, in businesses that are dealing with retail and, you know, uh, and, and wholesale, whether they're dealing with online, offline or a mix of, of the two the end of the day, who's choosing the credit card processing <laughs> solutions and vendors. And it's coming back to somebody in finance, not necessarily the head of e-commerce choosing 
which merchant processing account they're going to be using at the end of the day. So figuring out what their friction points were and, and where they were stuck, that's, that's how basically you kept listening to the market. <laughs> Instead of dictating what you wanted your product to be, you said, no, well, this is, this is where there's need. And that's, you know, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the mother of, of all invention is necessity. Um, yeah, definitely. And what's interesting is there, um, if you look at the card not present, I mean, in, in the credit card industry in general, there hasn't been a ton of innovation, you know, from when they were originally created um, to now. Um, you've just like you've said, you, we went from the, the carbon copies to the mag stripes to the chips and now the contactless. Um, and that's over a period of about, say, about 60 years, maybe a little longer. Uh, in the in the card not present world, it, it's been a little bit interesting because uh, the concept of card present, card not present was basically created around the time credit cards were created. And in those days, the concept of a card not present transaction meant that either if I was a consumer, I didn't have my card with me, or if I was a merchant, I was taking a payment over the phone. And because they're inherently considered riskier transactions, the card networks are like, listen, you want to accept those type of transactions, that's fine, but you're going to assume the liability for fraud, you're going to pay higher interchange rates. It was basically a way of dissuading merchants from accepting those type of transactions, understanding that it made up a very small percentage of transactions. Um, and that worked fine up until the 90s, and suddenly e-commerce takes off, and now you have this new type of card not present. Um where uh, that merchants are saying like, hey, I can't even do a card present in this environment, even if we wanted to. So the original response to that was, okay, just here's 3DS. Sorry, here's, th here's 3DS um, and um, 3DS will do a stepped up authentication every single time. And now, you know, that's this way it can almost mimic a card present, you know, with their, that added security. Well, um, and look, when you called in for a mail order somewhere or you, you know, you, you sent something into Sears or whatever it was that, you know, you were trying to use a, a card not present uh, in earlier years before e-commerce, there was very limited data available. When right. you're talking about, you know, today's digital age, we know the IP addresses and all kinds of data points around that order. Um, and so I, I suppose authenticating is just, you know, a, a different process. Um, than it would have been in another generation of credit card usage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the only problem with that is that the rails that they use for payments on the authorization side were were basically similar rails to what they were using in the card presence. So there was not a whole ton of data that you could pass through at the time of transaction. Mm -hmm. um, even now, um, that's what three D. Even now, that's what three DS. Um, that's what three DS is. Um, the 2.0's version is basically the rails that will um, enable the passing of significantly more data at the time of transaction. Also, the card not present has evolved from e-commerce to mobile to voice activated to Internet of Things. So we're making payments in ways that, you know, 60 years ago, they can never have imagined. And even 20, 30 years ago, we barely imagined. So it, it, there's been a massive evolution on that side of it. And that's where um, and that's where. Based, that's where the, the, the idea of it behind the MV3DS, or which is the 2.0, um, they, what, they're, what they're looking to do. Um, the other thing when people talk about fraud and they don't realize is that um, because they're using these dummy um, authorization rails, um, it's very, that's why if I have a brick and mortar store and I suddenly create the same exact business in e-commerce, my, my authorization um, percentage will actually decrease by, you know, it could be 10, 15%. So I'll get, let's say 98% of brick and mortar and I'm only getting 85%. And that's because they're not really that smart. So they're, they're flagging these transactions, which are actually legitimate transactions as fraudulent transactions. So when we think about fraud and the impact it has on, a, on an e-commerce or remote commerce merchant, it's more than just people charging back credit card uh, transactions. It's also declines that should have been in approvals. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that in a lot of cases, thinking back to what the merchants uh, go through, people don't realize that if you're giving up in totality between the annual fees, the monthly fees, the uh, the interchange rates and and discount, you know, points and other other things, you know, that that are stacking up. That if you wind up paying four or five percent in processing, uh, let's say you sell electronics and you've got something like maybe a ten to twenty percent margin, it hurts. You know, you're selling wholesale. You've got maybe a you know twenty thirty percent margin. 
um, it's painful that the percentage of the profit <laughs> is very significant in some cases. Uh, and, you know, then when you start to add in the fraud uh, and, you know, insult on top of injury, it really can can get really, really uh, painful. It can really uh, squeeze um, any kind of business uh, when you're dealing with, with things, uh, you know, in any kind of size or bulk. So I think that's often left out of the story that we've allowed the, you know, payments to become, um, you know, part of these mega corporations, Visa, MasterCard, Amex, you know, companies that, <laughs> that I certainly, uh, you know, do business with a, as a a user otherwise. And um, we've subscribed to a process uh, that isn't necessarily merchant friendly. And that's often, you know, left out of, of this conversation. So always glad to, um, to be able to talk about it, especially for the, the merchants out there that um, we don't always stop to look at it. But l- let's circle back here for a second. So friendly fraud versus other types of fraud. Is there a, an, a concise def- definition that you go by when it comes to friendly fraud that says, you know, th- these are the types of users that something like 3D Secure, uh, you know, c- can assist with, uh, you know, where otherwise you might be dealing with chargebacks and other fees and headaches and time lost and money lost? Yeah, so friendly fraud um, is literally where I make a transaction and then the claim I never authorized it. It's called friendly because the, the customer is, is actually a legitimate customer. They're, they're a friendly. Um, the example I typically like to use is, let's say, an online furniture company. So they generally have very strict return policies. It'll be a 30% restock fee once I sign for an item. So imagine I buy a couch for $1,000. I ship it to my house. I sign for it. I put it in my living room. And my wife's like, yeah, we're not keeping that couch. Now, I know if I call up this merchant to take back the couch, they're going to charge me $300. I don't want to pay $300 for a couch I'm not keeping. So my thought process here is I'll call up my my issuing bank, say, hey, I never authorized this transaction. Let the merchant come pick up the couch. He'll get his money back. I'll get my money back. And everybody's happy. Um, Ultimately, though, the merchant's out the money. They're out the item. And the worst part about this type of fraud is they cannot prevent it from happening. Because if you think about it, everything about that transaction is legitimate. It's a legitimate buyer making a legitimate purchase, shipping it legitimately, signing for it legitimately. The fraud is when you know when he called up and said, "Hey, I never authorized this transaction," um, and it and it's a huge problem. And and what's interesting is, I mean, it probably existed prior um, to e-commerce taking off, um, but on a very small level, and it was ultimately the issuer's problem who paid for it. Um, if you think about it, when you walk into a brick and mortar store, they don't spend a dollar. Um, trying to prevent fraud, right? Because ultimately, if you use a stolen credit card, it's not their problem. You, maybe one out of every a thousand times you go into a store, they might ID you to, to match it, um, which I don't think even they're even legally able to do anymore. But the idea is that they don't care because it's not their problem. But now we have this added expense that we put on merchants where in the e-commerce world, sp- they're spending billions of dollars a year trying to prevent fraud. And the most common form of fraud is friendly fraud. It makes up about 75 to 80% um, of all uh, fraudulent transactions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because yeah, look, if, if you're talking, there are those, uh, I suppose, those categories that you can resell the stuff on the street more easily. And I think that those get targeted more in an organized fashion. So if you're selling, I don't know, uh, jewelry, gold bullion, electronics, things that are easy to offload, uh, not that I would know from experience, right? Uh, (laughs) uh, But, you know, those are the things that, you know, back in my agency days, that's where I'd be recommending the client, look, you know, I I don't want to get that phone call when you realize that you just shipped out a bunch of orders and um, you're, you're out the merchandise, you're out the money, you've got nothing. Um, let's get you protected in advance because we know that, uh, that that's the kind of category you have. On the other hand, selling, I don't know, you know, shoes. So somebody orders a pair of shoes, you know, how often is somebody going to call and say that, uh, or, you know, or how, how often is a, a ring of thieves going to be um, putting in a whole bunch of shoe orders that just seem unusual? And uh, I don't think it ha- it's going to happen quite as often to your average shoe retailer. Um, on the other hand, friendly fraud, getting somebody that says that and tell me, is, would this be a correct uh, definition? They receive the package, but they say, I never got that. 
Um, so it, it shipped, they, it arrived and they, it wasn't on my doorstep. I don't know what happened. Right. So saying I never received it there, at least a merchant could do something to fight back and they'd have to get delivery receipt and things like that. Um, but there are instances where even then they wouldn't be able to win and that would probably fall under the category of, of friendly fraud. Cause ultimately the fraud is, is when I, I, I dispute it for something that isn't true. Um, so that's where the fraud is. Um, but the one thing when it comes to chargebacks, especially for merchants, the one that they can never win is the fraud chargeback. If you get a, if you charge it back and say, Hey, I never authorized this transaction. There is nothing merchant can jump through every hoop in the world. Um, they're not going to be able to do anything to, um, to win that chargeback. And they'll spend a lot of time because the system basically, uh, <laughs> it's like waiting on hold for eternity. Um, you know, they're given the option uh, from my, uh, my limited experience to file for, uh, to dispute the chargeback. Um, and they could probably go through up to, depending on wh- where things are at these days, maybe three rounds of that. But that's interesting that, yeah, that they're so rarely going to, um, be yeah. able to win that, that how are they going to prove it out? So yeah, if the onus is on the merchant and the merchant doesn't have the tools to win that battle, you know, so depending on the category that they're in, uh, you know, talking about higher risk and things, you know, depending on what you're selling historically, uh, and how long you're in business and what your chargeback you know, ratios are, uh, things like that are going to dictate just, um, what kind of percentages you're going to pay to process credit cards, uh, <laughs> you know, you start to get a bunch of these uh, friendly fraud charges. Not only is it costing you uh, money right then and there that you lost the money for this order that you shipped out, you had to pay a chargeback fee because the merchant gets dinged for that too, that there's a fee for going through that process, but it can also jump your rates. <laughs> yeah, it could jump your rates or it could eventually shut your merchant account down. Um, so it has a massive, massive impact. I've seen numbers all over the map, but I've seen it, it could cost merchants as high as 20 to 30% of their bottom line. Wow. I've never seen it go quite that high. I mean, I know categories, like if you're selling, I don't know, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, herbal supplement, um, you know, some wonder drug kind of a thing. If you're, uh, dealing with, I don't know, and this year's an interesting year for it, uh, travel, and you're taking deposits on things that, you know, people aren't going to take that trip for six months. And what happens when, I don't know, that cruise ship isn't around in six months, <laughs> you know, um, things right. that different categories and different issues that'll drive up the prices, depending on the country that the, the business is headquartered in is, uh, is based in and banking relationships and other things, but what, 20 or 30%, uh, hard to imagine what kind of businesses could build in well- that that kind of uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. that kind of a cushion. Yeah. So the twenty thirty percent is really about if you think about it. Um, besides being out the items that they're out, um, they have to pay a char- uh, chargeback fee that could be somewhere forty to you know, on average it's about forty dollars, but it could be somewhere between twenty and and I think I've seen as high as sixty dollars. Um, plus the processing fees. Usually these type of merchants are on the high risk side, so they're usually paying already in like the five percent range. Um, so you start, all that stuff starts to, you know, add up very, very quickly, um, for these merchants. And, and usually they're getting those accounts. They have a rolling reserve of, let's say 90, you know, for 90 days of, you know, some other, uh, it could be like 10, 15%. Um, a lot of these costs end up, you know, when you start adding it up to the merchant, it, you know, it's hard for them from a cash flow perspective, sometimes to even stay afloat. Um, so it's just one of those systems, like if you think when you're in the brick and mortar world, you don't have to worry about, and now suddenly you're creating an e-commerce and you don't even think about it. And suddenly you're like, what's going on here? You know, it, basically it's a tax <laughs> to do business. And uh, if, you know, if there are people out there saying, oh, he's cheating on his taxes or something, you know, then all of a sudden you've got to pay for CPAs and people to, you know, and lawyers to fight the IRS and deal with it. Like no matter what, you can't win. There's no beating yeah. the IRS, right? You know, the, nobody wants an audit. So, yeah. I, and 3D Secure, what is it that's actually happening there that's protecting the merchant? What, what's so stopping what's, the merchant from getting this charge back? Yeah. So what's happening is the merchant's basically passing the transaction information through to the issuer um, prior to authorization. So it's happening all in real time. And they're basically saying to the issuer, hey, can you determine if this is actually Yitz making the transaction? Um, 
and it allows them to pull device ID, location, IP address, plus they have a ton of metadata on me, on me as, a, as a consumer. Um, so they, they, they can tell in real time if it's, if it's me actually making the transaction and if they are able to authenticate and say, hey, this is Yet's making it, they give back what, what I call like a digital signature, but it's, it's three additional fields that get passed through um, to the um, issuers at, um, at the, through, with authorization. So that the issuer recognizes it at authorization, okay, we've confirmed this is Yitz making the transaction. Um, not only is it going to give the liability shift, it's actually going to increase um, the authorization rates. Um, so it allows, it's basically the issuers, the simplest way to say it is it's the issuers determining it's me and it's, they're saying we're going to assume the liability. And they have to do this because the card networks make the rules and everybody has to follow it if you want to play on their network. Um, so the issuers have to authenticate. If the merchant passes the information through for authentication, the issuer has to um, authenticate the card holder. That's very interesting. I mean, we deal with in the web hosting world all this PCI compliance uh, you know, and it's something that, that our team deals with often. And that's what a lot comes down to. It, we don't make the rules. <laughs> yeah, uh, We can only help people to abide by them. And in some cases, there are gray areas and things. And so uh, we dealt with that this past year with Magenta One End of Life. And well, uh, you know, if, if you get patches for your Magento site from a third party, not from Adobe, who owns the Magento brand and, and are the publishers of the Magento software, uh, if you go somewhere like Mage One, a third party, to get your patches, is that abiding by uh, the, the PCI regulations? Well, there's not exactly a hotline for people like me. Trust me, I tried to <laughs> to get clear answers on that, even though it would seem to meet the regs as we've been seeing uh, that software hit its end of life at the end of June, and merchants are doing quite fine with uh, with the options that, that have been uh, made available within the e-commerce community, uh, you know, to stay on Magenta One. So, so far, so good for those merchants. But, uh, but it's interesting to see how merchants get caught in the crosshairs. They can't normally get an an easy answer on something. They don't have any control. They don't have any choice. This is just how business is conducted. <laughs> Back to that tax theory of mine. Um, yeah. So they've got three D secure. That's that's going to say, hey, look, you know, this is basically an approved order. So there's no way that somebody's going to come back and say that, nope, that wasn't me. We know it was them. Um, so yeah, have we seen any trend this year? I mean, pandemic, I- increased uh, unemployment, um, you know, a- economic strife, people just stuck home. I don't know. Has there been any data that's, that you've seen yet this year that suggests uh, any changes in friendly fraud based upon, you know, more people buying more online than normal and from places that they wouldn't normally, things that they would get somewhere locally otherwise? Um, yeah, so you, you're definitely seeing an increase in, in fraud um, just across the board. Um, just in general, to put things a little bit in perspective of how, how much this industry has grown, um, in March, um, MasterCard announced that in, I think it was March or April, 50% of their transactions were actually considered, were con- contactless slash card not present, um, which was a 40% increase from the year before. Um, it had previously been growing by single digits, so they had expected over the next five years, um, card not present would exceed card present transactions. But, you know, obviously COVID and everything around that has caused it to app absolutely explode and it accelerated significantly. Um, with that, it brought a very high um, increase in, in fraud rates. Um, also, a lot of industries that predominantly had been brick and mortar, like you know restaurants and things like that, majority of their business now shifted to card not present. So what you saw were companies like Square who were forced to you know hold reserves now on merchants who had been underwritten for risk of, of a card not present, of a card present um, type of merchant and therefore they were considered low risk and now suddenly they shifted to card not present and suddenly boom now they're considered a high risk merchant um so well, a lot of these and, and in a go. year when um unfortunately you know it, there wasn't pure clarity in which of those brick and mortar merchants were going to be able to make the shift successfully and so look a credit card processing you know it, it's a form of loan uh you run the credit card credit card issuers you know the uh, are, are paying the merchant, um, you know, the, the money is shifting to the merchant, but what happens if the merchant doesn't ship the goods or isn't around to take a return on the goods or, 
any number of other inevitabilities, well, you know, it's the credit card network <laughs> uh, that's left holding the bag. So uh, it's understandable to some extent that they were going to have to take certain actions, even though it's at an extremely rough time for merchants to weather that. It's always perfect storm in these. Like, no, nobody wants to be yeah. left holding the bag. And I, I think that's, you know, back to one of the central points that I think has been coming out uh, here is that as with many things in our lives, uh, the banks hold a lot more of the cards than uh, than the merchants or the consumers uh, for that matter. Yeah. So the one the one thing that I'm not sure why, but till this day still surprises me is that the, the rewards that we get on our credit cards, those are actually paid for by our merchants. They're not paid for by the issuers. And it, it, it's mind boggling to think, but the merchants, what are they going to do? They don't have a choice, right? It's a cost of doing business. The alternative is just not accepting credit cards if they don't want to pay for it. So when we use a, a, a rewards card, it's the merchants are paying a full percentage higher than they would be if you were using a you know a regular um, credit card. So yeah. You've so said, when I get that exactly. 1% cash back, it's not magic and it's, it's yeah. not coming out of Amex's pocket or Visa or anybody. It's, <laughs> it's coming out of the merchant's pocket. Uh, I mean, it's something that I've been aware of. And look, you use a corporate credit card. It's just as dastardly. Um, yeah. When, you, when we talk interchange, uh, you know, which is basically the base rate uh, that, that it's going to cost to run that credit card, nobody actually gets charged. No merchant actually pays interchange because nobody's got a plain vanilla Visa or MasterCard in their pocket. It's all a rewards or corporate or some other... Uh, version of the card, cashback, wh whatever you could think of. So th there's always going to be some extra on top. So when I walk in, in, in a normal year, uh, the floor at an e-commerce trade show, inevitably, I'm going to run into a few different fraud prevention uh, technologies, um, companies like ClearSale, uh, folks that help to block the bots, folks that help to block... Uh, you know, uh, orders in general that, that are fraudulent um, from making it through the system um, because there's something known about them or visible about them that doesn't add up, it doesn't match up uh, with the expectation um, of a safe and secure order in that moment. In some ways, these are complementary from what I'm gathering because what you're doing um, is uh, via 3D Secure is blocking um, friendly fraud, which, you know, as, as we've been talking about is, is going to, uh, be that, uh, that chargeback situation versus, you know, blocking a fraudulent order in, in the first place that, you know, that may be, uh, otherwise masked as a good order that there, there might, would you say that there's some overlap between some of these other technologies or, um, are, are they completely complementary? Because I imagine that, uh, you know, that for merchants, you know, it's probably in some cases challenging to understand how to holistically fight fraud. So those types of companies are, are focusing only on true fraud. Um, true fraud makes up about a quarter of a percent of all transactions. They don't help at all on the friendly fraud side. Um, you can use 3DS um, to, to stop all types of fraud. Uh, the problem is that, you know, in 5% of, of transactions, it'll do, it'll require what's called a stepped-up authentication, which could add additional friction. And there are definitely some false positives within the 5%, so we don't necessarily recommend um, you utilizing that um, for that. What will be interesting is that eventually the, the goal of 3DS and the card networks is to get rid of the onus of fraud on merchants and eventually shift it to the issuers. So that doesn't mean companies like NSA and ClearSale um, are going to go out of business. It's just going to shift who their um, their end customer is. So right now it's it's the merchants. Eventually that'll be the issuers. Um, they're not building their own technologies. They're using third-party companies on the 3DS side, um, which uh, helps them determine if it's a cardholder. And eventually, you know, what I see, the way I see it going is those types of companies are eventually going to, you know, pivot to that and, you know, focus on the issuers as the end customers. So I, I should expect some of these tech companies to get swallowed up by, by the issuers <laughs> before oh, all, yeah. all, all is said and done. We kind of know how that works. So I, yes. I kind of think what's being discussed in boardrooms in some of these companies, uh, I, I imagine that not all of them will be 
uh, acquired, but that some of them certainly will be. That'll be interesting. Uh, and, you know, so pay is uh, is involved with 3D Secure. What is the specific value proposition that pay brings to the market? Can users get their own 3D Secure account? Do they go to pay to get it? Do they use your system through some other third party? What's the actual interaction like when it comes to your team and, and the world and what you do uniquely? So the card networks, they create these protocols and then anyone can build, build, a, um, build according to those uh, specifications. Uh, they don't actually build their own. So if I'm a merchant and I want to start accepting credit cards in a store, I need a credit card terminal. Those terminals were built according to the specifications that the card brands created and you know got certified by that. Um, the same thing works on the 3DS side. Um, so there is something called the 3DS server on the merchant side and what's called an ACS on the um, issuer side. We are what's called the 3DS server. So theoretically, a merchant can go create, build their own 3DS server, go through the certification process, um, and then use it. Um, but it's generally easier to use uh, someone like us. Um, globally, there's, I think, about 90 of us that could do this. Um, in the U.S., there's only three active companies. So um, what we've done is we've built it in a way that it makes it super simple for a merchant to be able to start accepting, um, start using 3DS. So we have a JavaScript SDK, which, you know, in essence, is a few lines of code that the merchant drops into their shopping cart or their payment form. Um, and then they're already getting, um, they can start using 3DS immediately. Um, so we take care of everything soup to nuts. We went through the certification. We help get it registered when the card brand requires a registration. And we do all the uh, all the authentication on their behalf. And so it's a quick implementation. Do you have pre-existing uh, integrations above and beyond that with different pro you know, uh, gateways or processors or e-commerce platforms or basically... You've got your SDK, you know, they, they grab some JavaScript, implement, and, you know, on a merchant-by-merchant -merchant basis, store-by-store, -store, it, it gets loaded up. Yeah, so we're, we're pretty much, we're, we're processor agnostic, um, gateway agnostic. Um, we're technically platform agnostic, though certain platforms, they, the, they don't allow you to um, edit the payment form. Yeah, so, so if you're dealing with like Shopify, you might not be able to edit the uh, the checkout flow or right. uh, insert something along the way. Correct, but we are working on on plugins for all the different shopping carts, so that you know it, it's even easier for merchants to to start using us on those platforms. That's really interesting. So, and would you say while this is happening, is it adding any time to the checkout um, as your servers are being pinged to verify? Uh, this to be good before it finishes uh, the checkout process or um, on the shop or on the user, is it any different before or after this technology is implemented on the website? So from a consumer standpoint, you cannot tell the difference before or after that, you're, that they're using um, pay on there. Um, technically, it takes up to eight to 10 seconds on average for the authentication on the 1.0 side. And on the 2.0 side, it's taking about two and a half seconds. Um, we get around that actually by doing the authentication during the checkout. So we wait until we get the basic information that we need, which is cardholder name and, you know, uh, cardholder number and expiration. And then while they're filling out the rest of the payment form, so it could be shipping and billing address, we do the authentication so that by the time the cardholders click submit, um, it goes straight for authorization. We've already done our side. Um, we saw that waiting that eight to 10 seconds is a lifetime in the e-commerce world. And, you know, you, you can't have that. That does cause real conversion issues. Yeah, there's nothing worse than the, the shopper clicking, you know, <laughs> the checkout button more than once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, to complete the, the order. And, you know, would you say that um, that there's some kind of threshold that makes sense for a merchant to really look at uh, at deploying this kind of technology? Do they have to have a certain number of orders or revenue or something to be worth their while today um, to independently uh, deploy because of any, any kind of cost along the way? Or uh, basically, you don't see a reason that that, <laughs> that a merchant wouldn't have it. 
So on the 1.0 side, it used to it used to require merchants that had a lot of charge racks, so their charge rack ratios had to be pretty high for it to make a difference. If you were a low risk merchant, the only value add there was like interchange, and it was like you know, you're talking 10 to 15 basis points. It wasn't it wasn't a whole lot. Um, with 2.0, because it uh, impacts authorization issues, um, it's two to 15 percent of their top line revenue. Um, so pretty much any merchant. I mean, our costs, you know, were, were a few cents per transaction. Um, so it's really, it's really pretty simple for a merchant to, you know, start and the cost that they're saving, um, is usually significantly more, um, than, you know, the benefits that are outweighing, um, the, the actual cost. So with 2.0, I would say that any merchant doesn't make a difference what size you are, um, should be using it. Yeah. So if they have a high ticket item, absolutely. But in general, uh, it's going to pay for itself for most users. Uh, yeah. that's always what I love to hear. Look, I've always said, I don't mind, uh, you know, spending money that makes money <laughs> or that, or that, you know, that actually saves money, uh, you know, that I don't mind another vendor in there as long as everything plays nice. Uh, and, uh, you know, that doesn't create more technical debt or friction of, of any significance. And it sounds like with a little bit of JavaScript, um, not a lot going on there, which is great. Uh, are there a lot of e-commerce merchants that are already using 3D Secure or 3D Secure 2.0, uh, or is it a minority of users out there? Yeah, so it's a very, very minor, a small minority of users that are currently using 3DS, um, specifically to the U.S., Europe, and other regions. Um, that's a totally different animal. Um, but when it comes to the U.S., I mean, we're generally, um, especially with payments, as technologically advanced as we are as a country. Uh, we're a dinosaur when it comes to payments. So pretty much all the other countries in the world see some level of decent adoption of 3DS. The U.S. has minimal adoption of it. Um, 2.0 is the card brand's way of getting behind that, and they're, they're actually excited about it, and they're pushing it. So there will be a lot more. Um, you will see over the next few years, I think, a lot more merchants adopting it. Um, they're, they're addressing a lot of the pain points that the merchants um, were seeing in the remote commerce world. Um, they'll be rolling out other protocols as well on top of this yeah. um, to, to allow merchants to benefit. I know that specifically in the Magento ecosystem, most of the payment gateways were basically kicked out of the core. <laughs> uh, you know, they were core bundled extensions as, as I'd look at them. Uh, and, uh, so you had all, all sorts of gateways that were included by default that you could choose from. And Magento said, no, like there are too many of these that aren't secure enough, that aren't up to date enough. Basically, like we'll leave in, you know, Braintree or something, but otherwise, you know, just go to the Magento marketplace, go to your payment processors, get, get the best thing on the market. Um, they didn't want to be responsible for the upkeep because they knew that the technology was going to be evolving um, and they knew that what they had on their hands didn't didn't make sense. <laughs> so yeah, I, exactly. I think even from the platform perspective, there's been at least some foresight insight into what's going on. Um, you know, given the interesting role that your team plays, uh, what kind of role have partnerships played in what you do? Because I, I would imagine that, um, that, that there are a lot of players that are somewhere in the middle of the stream because that's uh, that, that's often what merchants get confused about when it comes to uh, the entire you know payment process that you've got uh, your payment gateway that's actually running the credit card and somewhere along the, the route there you've got you know uh, payment processors and issuers and 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 banks and uh, and so on and so forth that um, that that there's this whole slew of <laughs> different uh, companies that have their their hands in the mix, um, as opposed to working with with, um, with individual merchants on, on the case by case, uh, you know, ha have you found that at this point that there's probably more or, or maybe more uh, interest coming from the middle market to try to get ahead of the problem that they've yeah, for so, so long not gotten ahead of? <laughs> yeah, so we've been we've always been focusing on small medium sized merchants. That's been our core, um, at least initially. Um, they were the lowest hanging fruit. They were the ones who saw a lot of pain points um, with their charge racks and, and um, trying to stay one step ahead has always been a problem for them. They were also kind of like the forgotten ones 
um, in, in, in the ecosystem. Um, the other thing we did is that we don't really sell direct to merchant on the small, medium size um, level. Um, there we're going after the, the partnerships. So the, the processors, charge recommendation companies, gateway, CRMs, people already have a relationship with the merchant around their payment stack. Um, instead of us going out there and selling it to the merchants, we just found that they were always putting us on the phone with one of these um, partners and saying, hey, can you explain it to them? If it makes sense to them, then we're going to sign up for it um, because they don't have the internal bandwidth to make these decisions on their own. So they were always outsourcing it. So we're like, instead of you know doing that anyway, and then it's, it's a double sale, let's just give them the ability to go out there and resell our product. And, you know, and that's where we've been focusing. Obviously on the enterprise, it's totally different. There we do direct, but... Um, on a small, medium size, we're, we're only focusing on partnerships. It's definitely confusing for merchants. <laughs> yeah. If, any, if we can agree on anything, uh, which apparently we can agree on a lot, but uh, I think it's, it's that, uh, you know, the merchants get handed a need to be tech companies um, and to have a lot of knowledge and resource uh, and time that is so rarely available. And that's where a lot of trouble happens. It's why companies like JetRails are out there dealing with all the security on, and loading speed optimization and scalability and all the things that we do that, you know, you can go spin up a server somewhere, but you're probably not going to be very happy with the outcome over time. It may be okay for a all while, right. but uh, long-term without the right maintenance and management and monitoring, you're asking for trouble. I, I think the payment side is a little bit of the same that, uh, you know, trying to deal with separate gateways and processors and fraud solutions and other things. It's it's a lot when there's a problem in the stack, figuring out where that problem is, is painful. Uh, when you've got too many vendors in the mix, it's, you know, even taking, a, you know, a step even farther back from it, just getting to the, you know, the, the base understanding of what the different, what the inherent differences are here. I was talking about, you know, other uh, fraud solutions and how these can stack together. Um, vendor management <laughs> becomes, uh, I think, challenging in general, uh, you know, f not only figuring them all out, but continuing to keep an eye on what they're costing you and if everything is properly implemented as you continue to upgrade and deal with other things. So that all jives with my, my way of thinking around these sorts of things. You know, you go to someone like authorized.net and you say, I need credit card processing because their gateway is in so many uh, platforms. And um, I've done a lot of business with authorized.net through the years, um, you know, and they're not a payment processor, but they'll sell you payment processing through a partnership, um, not necessarily the, the best rates or anything else, but you came to them and they solved your problem. Um, I, I like when there's a top down, when there's been really that fourth or that here's the stack, here's what you need. <laughs> uh, we're going to take away your pain. We're going to protect you. We're your partners in this. Uh, I, I think that the more that merchants find companies that say, you know, that, that take that approach, we're, uh, we're, we're going to be your partners in this sector of your business to make sure that things are smooth, um, that you're successful. It's just a beautiful thing, you know, marriages within, uh, within the industry. So yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Anything new coming down the pike that we haven't touched on any, uh, any hopes and dreams for later this year, next year in terms of, uh, what your team is up to and what the industry is up to? Yeah, so we'll probably be so one of the, probably the biggest thing, and it's a whole other conversation, um, is PSD two in Europe. Um, so if you're not familiar with it, or whoever is listening that isn't familiar with it, it's basically the the they're forcing banks to open up their APIs um, to you know foster competition in the in in, in the banking world, um, and what that's that ultimately is doing is it potentially puts consumers financial data at risk. So they're requiring what's called strong customer authentication, which is two factor authentication, something you have, something you are, something, you know, two out of three of those. Um, and they're requiring it on every single um, transaction. And as of now, it's going to be effective January 1st. Um, we'll see if that gets pushed off again because of COVID six months. Um, but if merchants do not do, um, SCA or strong customer authentication, they're actually those transactions are going to get declined. Um, right now, the only thing that's 
PSD2 compliant um, on the payment side is 3DS, um, which means that all the merchants have to start implementing it. Um, there is a downside to it because they can't necessarily control what the experience will look like. With 3DS, it's the issuer that, that does. Um, so we will be rolling out um, what's called a merchant controlled experience um, that they'll be able to do. So think like a company like Amazon or Uber, right? Their entire business model is built around customer experience. And then when it comes to the payment side, you're taking that um, experience away from them and putting it in the hands of the issuers. It's like a, it's a no-go. Um, so what we'll be doing is offering a solution that will um, allow merchants to control that experience. And then eventually we're probably going to be rolling out our original product as well. Um, that quick checkout option, it plays really nicely with PSD2 and it's going to be PSD2 compliant. It'll give consumers the, you know, the ability to kind of control their experience and know what it's going to look like every single time they check out. Yeah. You know, we talked a little bit about that situation in uh, episode, looks like it was 34, um, so going back a, a little bit earlier into the pandemic and, you know, Europe always pushes us to, <laughs> uh, to evolve, um, including with things like data security, uh, GDPR and some of those other situations. So no huge surprises here, but glad to hear that the industry is, uh, as we typically anticipate in tech, is rising to the occasion um, to be able to help merchants deal with this more elegantly, uh, you know, because all that any of us in the industry really want to see is just a sleek, friendly customer experience <laughs> and, um, and regulation rarely helps with that. So uh, that sounds fantastic. Yes, it's been a pleasure getting to meet you today and, uh, and chatting about uh, friendly fraud and a bunch of other uh, related topics. Um, any final thoughts before we wrap? No, I think I'm good. I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate the time. This was a fun uh, conversation. Awesome. Well, to our listeners, thank you as always. Uh, we'll have some, uh, some other new episodes coming up shortly. As always, feel free to subscribe wherever you listen and uh, happy selling. Thanks for listening to the JetRails podcast. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We also post full videos of most episodes on the JetRails YouTube and Facebook channels. You can find links at jetrails.com forward slash podcast. Have questions about an episode? Is there a topic you'd like us to cover in the future? We're at JetRails on LinkedIn and Twitter. Do you want to sponsor this podcast? Sorry, but we're committed to ad-free listening. We are, however, always looking for guests that our listeners will benefit from. And don't forget to like the podcast on whatever platform you're tuning in from. It's a small ask, but it's a big help. We appreciate it. And more importantly, we appreciate you.